All right, so we're going to continue on through our sermon series, which is the fruit of the Spirit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? If we break it down into fruit juices, it looks like this, that these are the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the qualities or the fruits that God produces within us. And I think at the same time, these are qualities that we would like to have. And when we work together with God, this is something that we call discipleship that I am the student and Jesus is the teacher. I am a disciple of Jesus and we grow together in Christ. Um, how do we grow as students of Jesus? We root ourselves in him. And I've been using the same illustration throughout the sermon series. You don't just go to the store and you buy a potted plant and you bring it home and then you throw it out into the driveway and wish it luck. Right? You, you bring it home, you pick this, but like each year I get these tomato plants because I see the picture and I'm like, I would really love to make pico de gallo out of this. And then I, I put it in this spot and I make sure that there's water and fertilizer and all these things. And then I don't get any tomatoes and I just go to the store and buy pico de gallo. But um, I put a lot of time and energy into trying to grow these things and the right place and you know the right climate, all these things. And so that's how we grow grow in Christ, that we are rooted in Christ, and we do things that help our relationship with him, which might be prayer, community, worship, um, these things. We, we, we do these things intentionally to grow. And so the text for the fruit of the Spirit comes from Galatians. In this book, Paul is explaining the difference between someone who attempts to live by the law and the rules that I'm going to make God happy or my relationship is dependent on law and rules or someone who is a new creation in Christ and is led by the Spirit. And so it's in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 uh, through 26. And I'll read it here. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. And so today we're going to be speaking about faithfulness. What is it? How do we grow in faithfulness? And why is it important? Important. And so different words that we might use instead of faithfulness would be dedicated, steadfast, devoted, dependable, accurate, being true. I think that faithfulness is something we all aspire to. Um, I would also think that a lot of us would like to be remembered as being people who are faithful. That Sally, whoever Sally is, was a faithful person. That is a very good compliment to be remembered as someone who is faithful. So there are several examples of faithful people within Scripture. Um, I'm only going to cover a couple. First is Abraham or Abram, who was faithful to the point where God said that you're supposed to go and sacrifice your son Isaac, that he was willing to do so. That was a big test of his faith. And so he was faithful to do that. 
Another example could be Daniel in the lion's den. And when we look at Daniel in Scripture, Daniel is one of the interesting things about him, at least that I think is interesting, that one of his greatest attributes was just being faithful. He just was there all the time. He always did what it is that he was supposed to do. He was a faithful, faithful man. And then we have a great example in Ruth and Naomi in that all of Naomi's uh, uh, sons had died and Ruth was married to one of her sons. And so um, Ruth decided to stay with Naomi. She's like, no, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to remain faithful to this relationship uh, that we have with one another. And so as we look in scripture at examples of people being faithful, uh, it is kind of interesting that there's even more examples of people who wrestle with being faithful. And so we see a lot of people in scripture who wrestle with this idea of remaining faithful. And ultimately it's because, you know, for the first example is Adam and Eve within the garden. We see that sin has corrupted us or stained us in such a way that faithfulness ends up becoming a struggle for us. That it's, you know, it, it can be hard to be faithful. And so we see examples of Samson or King David or Solomon or even Peter in the New Testament. We see that, uh, you know, Jesus tells his disciples that I'm going to be crucified and betrayed. And Peter says, I will not, I will not leave your side. Uh, and Jesus says, well, before the rooster uh, cries this morning, you will have denied me three different times. And Peter says, no way, Jose, that's not going to happen. But what we see in scripture is that ultimately Peter does deny him. But uh, history would tell us that Peter, even though he denied Christ, that he would die a faithful person and that he refused that uh, when he was martyred that he was crucified and he refused to be crucified upright like this but instead decided to be crucified upside down so that no one would mistake uh, him for even looking like Jesus in that way and so he decided to be uh, martyred, crucified upside down. So even though he struggled with being faith, uh, faithful, uh, we see that in the end he uh, finished well. And I think we, we admire faithfulness and we all want to be faithful, um, but, uh, and I can just speak for myself and you can agree with this or not, most of us wrestle with being faithful. So how do we grow in the fruit of faithfulness? Um, certainly the first step in all of this is that to be present to God's faithfulness. If I'm going to be faithful, I need to be present and experience the faithfulness of God. That's where this all starts, that I need to know him as being a faithful father, a faithful creator, and that I experience that. In Exodus uh, chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, it says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then in Lamentations, uh, chapter 3, verses 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
So this idea that where do we start with our faithfulness has to start with God's faithfulness, that he is faithful to us, and that his faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness to him. He's not faithful to me because I'm faithful to him. It's the opposite way around, that I am faithful to him because he is faithful to me. Again, uh, his faithfulness to me is not dependent on who I am and what it is that I do, um, it's dependent upon who he is, that God is faithful to us even if we are not faithful. So again, the starting point is that I anchor myself to his faithfulness. I mean, all of us, I assume, actually I know, um, that we've all done some stupid sin. We've all done some stupid thing and told ourselves, man, I shouldn't do that again, or I need to be more faithful. I can't believe that happened one more time. I told myself I would never do that again. Um, I should be more faithful. And for the most part, it doesn't really work. And we can re re, you know, repeat that whole thing over and over and over again. Um, but when we really sit down, and even in the midst of all of that, I know that I've done stuff that I've been ashamed of, and I'm not just even talking about before I knew Christ. I mean, this could be last week. And so I do something that I'm ashamed of, and I know that I shouldn't do it, but that doesn't necessarily stop me from doing it. But the thing that ends up really prompting me more than anything else to stop doing the things that I don't want to do is knowing that God is faithful even in the midst of my mess-ups. That I know that when I mess up, that he is no further away or no closer to me than when I think that I was doing well. That God is faithful to us, irregardless of what it is that we are doing. That's his grace, that's his goodness. And so when we experience God's faithful, faithfulness to us again and again and again, that is what transforms us. That's certainly what transforms me. When I mess up and I go to him and I'm like, man, I shouldn't have done that. And he agrees. He's like, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. But I love you unconditionally. I love you. I accept you. I'm faithful to you, not because of your actions, but because of who God is. That will transform your life. Uh, resting on God's faithfulness and not our own. And so, even more, how do we grow in our faithfulness is that by looking at Jesus. Jesus as our example of faithfulness. Jesus is probably the best example of faithfulness. When we look at Jesus, and I think oftentimes we don't have a big enough picture of what it is that Jesus accomplished, is that Jesus was able to do what Adam and Eve could not do, which is to remain sinless. He was able to do what they were unable to do, which is remain sinless. Jesus was able to do what the tribe of Israel could not do, in that he was able to keep the whole law. So Jesus fulfills these things by being faithful. Jesus is the epitome of faithfulness. And again, Jesus is faithful to us when we are faithless. And again, Jesus isn't faithful to us because we're good or faithful. Here's the thing. Every single week does my, my, my faith get tempted. Every Friday, I play soccer out at the Caldwell Park. And so my faith 
is tested. My character is tested deeply. Because when you're playing a sport that you love and other people are playing with you, attitudes start to get kind of flared up and people are, you know, including me, uh, Scott can bear witness to some of my attitudes out on the field. And so even this last week, there was something that happened. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember what happened, but I, I get frustrated. I share my frustration with this person. Then I walk away and I'm like, oh man, I can't believe I'm still here doing this. And I feel convicted. Obviously not enough to stop, but um, I do feel conviction in my heart that, oh man, it's such a bummer that I keep doing this. Um, but again, it's, I know that I mess up and I know that I don't want to do those things, but I keep getting stuck <clears throat> in this same pattern. But in Romans 2 verse 4, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? And so I'm out on the soccer field. I'm getting frustrated that my team's not playing in the way that I want them to play or I'm not playing the way that I want to play. And then I say something that I shouldn't say, which is never terribly that bad. Um, but then I go into my car, and the game's over, and I think about God's kindness to me. And that's really the thing that ends up convicting me the most, that you love me, one, and that you love all those people that are playing the game. You love us all the same. At no point in time did any of those people that were playing, were they not your kids? Did you not love them unconditionally? Um, were you not wanting to grow your relationship with them? So again, that's the thing that probably convicts me the most is his kindness, his faithfulness to his promises, and it draws me deeper into him that I am and you are loved unconditionally. So then how can we treat other people in a way that is not... Uh, loving them unconditionally as well. If I know that I'm loved unconditionally and that he's faithful to me, not because of what I do, but because of who he is, uh, then how can I not love others as well? Um, so again, how do I grow in faithfulness? I, I need to, you need to, or want to, experience the faithfulness of God, that he is faithful to you no matter what. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more or less. He just loves you. That's it. Uh, experience his grace, experience his faithfulness. And that's how we grow, because that's the starting point. Because if we beat ourselves up for not being faithful enough, then it doesn't really, just ends up in some type of legalistic um, dead end. But if we grow in our, in, in, in our faithfulness because he is faithful, then that's a beautiful thing. So um, next is um, be the type of person that Jesus asks you to be. So on the one hand, I'm saying um, anchor yourself to who God is and that he is faithful to you no matter what. And we experience that faithfulness and regardless of if we have a bad attitude, good attitude, whatever, he's faithful to us. But then also being the type of person that Jesus asks you to be. And we read this earlier. We're going to read it again. Matthew 7, uh, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and Jesus is speaking here, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rock came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. 
But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So when you read this, it's a parable of Jesus, which is basically a story to convey several points, and Jesus talks in parables often. Um, There are several different points that you can get. First is that you get to build your house where it is that you want to build your house. It's something that we would call autonomy or choice, that God's given you choice. You get to choose. Where would you like to build your house? You are the builder of your house. You have all the tools to build your house. Obviously, he's not talking about a house, but he's talking about your life. How would you like to build your life? What would you like to build your life upon? And so in this parable, he gives us two different options. One is the sand. And these are people that hear the words of Jesus, but do not put them into practice. So they hear them. They're like, okay, Jesus is obviously a good guy, but I'm not going to put them into practice. And then we have the people that build it on the rock. They hear Jesus' words, and then they put them into practice. So when we read this, this text, one of the things and one of the reasons that I picked this is because Jesus is intentionally telling us to put his words into practice. This isn't a good idea. Um, He's saying, those who put my words into practice, build it upon the rock. Those who do not, then they build it upon the sand. So he's literally asking us to do something. It's not just this good idea, um, but he's saying, put my words into practice. This is called discipleship. And this is a really helpful, well, I'll explain it, but I think it's a great graphic in that there are several different areas that are are us, the way that we think and and act and feel. And so um, there's something that most of us are familiar with, which is orthodoxy, which is right belief. And this is something within the church that has probably been the thing that most churches focus on the most. You just need to believe the right thing. These are the creeds. This is good theology or what you believe about God. And so we're just going to continue to pound into you what is good or right belief. But then you have something that's called orthopraxy, which is right action. That my actions really do, they really reveal what it is that I believe. If I'm sitting at home and I'm eating uh, chocolate ice cream with fudge chunks in it, with caramel drizzled on there and whatever else you can imagine, It'd be, and I'm, look, I'm enjoying it. It'd be foolish to come up and ask me, do you like chocolate ice cream with fudge and caramel on it? You know what I believe by what it is that I'm doing. It would be redundant for you to ask me that question. Does that make sense? So orthopraxy is very important. At the same time, you have something that's called orthopathy, which is my feelings. How do I feel? My attitude, my emotions. And in the middle of all this, orthodoxy, what I believe, orthopraxy, what it is that I do, my behavior, my actions, and my feelings, this is what we call discipleship, in that I I give my whole self to Jesus. All of myself is presented to him. So why is this important? Because if we're going to practice biblical faithfulness, our whole self will be required. My beliefs, my actions, and my attitudes. Okay, for an example. Someone asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, 
And in Matthew, he responded, uh, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So again, discipleship is me giving my whole self to him. And so when we look at this, um, orthodoxy would say the right thing to do is to love God my neighbor. That's the right belief. Okay, I, I know that. That's the thought that I need to have. Orthopraxy is that I actually do something. I know God and that my neighbor feels loved. This is important. If I'm going to love my neighbor, it would probably be good to be judged by what my neighbor thinks about me, right? More than like, no, I love, hey, I love you. Um, does my neighbor actually feel loved? And orthopathy, my heart is in agreement with my thoughts and my actions. Again, why is this important? So let's say that your neighbor's lawn, uh, he, never mows your lawn, he never mows his lawn. You're looking out all the time and you're like, man. Yeah, and there are people who get really kind of wild about this. They put like dividing lines there, mine, yours, all these things. Like people get pretty wild about their lawns, okay? So let's just believe or imagine that this guy is a Christian, okay? And so he knows that he's supposed to love God with all of his heart, mind, and soul. And he's supposed to love his neighbor as, as himself. And this is why orthopathy ends up becoming so important. So he goes out, and he knows that he needs to love his neighbor, so he's going to go mow his lawn. So he, he's doing the right thing, thinking the right thing, but at the same time, we don't really know how this guy's feeling about what it is that he's doing. You can have the right belief, and you can have the right actions, but your attitude could just be junk. Your emotions, right? So this is the whole thing about legalism. I look like I'm doing the right thing. I can tell you what the right thing is to do. But my heart is so far away from what Jesus is trying to accomplish in my heart that we're ultimately missing such a huge point that really it's my attitude that is so important. My feelings, my emotions about the things that he is asking me to do. Again, I can believe the right things, I can do the right things, but my heart can really be in the wrong place. And Jesus talks about this all the time. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He talks to the Pharisees about being whitewashed tombs, and they look so good on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of just bones. He talks to them about having the cup, just being all, they want to clean the outside of the cup, but he's looking at the inside of the cup. Where's your heart? Where's your attitude? Because we can all sit here and look good and say all the right things, but where is our heart? Where is our attitude? So faithfulness requires that I know, be, and do the things of Jesus. It's not just enough to know them. It's not just enough to do them because we can fake it, but to actually be like Jesus to have our attitudes called into question. Why am I doing what it is that I'm doing? Is I, am I just doing it to try and please God? God's already pleased. Why am I doing this? Am I doing this so other people think that I look a particular way? Why am I mowing my neighbor's lawn? 
I need to know, I need to be, and I need to do things. My whole self is given to Christ. And certainly looking like a Christian isn't the goal. What does a Christian even look like? But being transformed by his faithfulness and love. Again, if you think about this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you think about everything that you've been forgiven for in Christ, and you want to go next door with a bad attitude uh, and be passive-aggressive and mow your neighbor's lawn, even though you've experienced total forgiveness in Christ, Again, the attitude that I experience his faithfulness to me in spite of like metaphorically all the lawns in my life that are like so overgrown with weeds, it's crazy. And he's like, I love you. But again, being transformed by his faithfulness and love, that's the goal, becoming a new creation in Christ. I want to be, know, be, and do the things of Jesus to the point that, and, and this is the thing, and I think this is where discipleship in Jesus is trying to get us to, that I want to know, be, and do Christ in such a way that I don't have to think about being faithful. It's just a natural reaction for me that I'm no longer just like predicated or, or just to do the wrong thing but that I'm much more likely to do what Christ would probably do in that moment because I know him and I've done those things and I'm in him in such a way that I I just naturally gravitate towards being like Christ, which of course we're not going to get there. Um, But again, instead of just kind of being slanted in one way, I'm, I'm much more likely to do what it is that Jesus would ask me to do or have me to be in that moment. Being faithful to the person and purposes of Jesus by default. Um, and it doesn't mean that we won't, we won't mess up. So how do I grow in faithfulness? First off, I need to know the faithfulness of God. And if you don't know the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of all the things that have gone on in your life, and everyone in this room has things in their life to where we would ask, God, where were you in this moment? It's a very biblical question. Like, where were you? I didn't think this was going to happen if you were faithful to me. To know the faithfulness of God and know that he is faithful. Again, how do I grow in faithfulness? To see the faithfulness of Jesus. That he is faithful to us. He's faithful to creation. He was able to do what Adam and Eve couldn't do and what the tribe of Israel could not do. And he does it all for us. And that to submit myself to follow him, to know orthodoxy, to be orthopathy, and to do orthopraxy, the things of Jesus. Again, he wants your whole self, everything, and to do those things. So we have been doing something that's called Questions for Jesus at the end of each sermon in which we just ask Jesus a question. Um, If you read scripture, uh, then you're well aware that uh, all throughout the Old Testament, they call God the living God, that Jesus is present with us, that the Holy Spirit is present with us right here. This isn't some far off uh, God who's out there, but this is a personal God who's here right now and, and within all creation. You are uniquely created to interact and hear the voice of God out of all creation that you are uniquely designed to be able to uh, hear from him. So here in a moment, I'm just going to put a question up on the screen. And if you want to participate, you can. If you don't want to participate, you don't have to. 
And we're just going to sit in quiet for a moment. And you're just going to ask Jesus this question. And then after that, um, I'm going to ask that you share what it is that you feel like Jesus spoke to you. And you can share that with someone else. If you don't want to participate, again, you don't have to. And if you're the type of person that says, well, I don't generally hear from God, then whatever pops up into your head uh, that's not the answer of, did I leave the toaster on? And it sounds like Jesus, then just assume that that's Jesus speaking to you in the moment. And then you're going to share that with someone else, okay? And so the question is, Jesus, what do you adore about me? So we're just going to take a moment, you just sit in quiet. Okay, doesn't have to be long for him to speak to us. And then this part is not going to be long as well. If you would like to, you can share with a neighbor that's either right next to you or someone who is a little bit further away and just share with them what you heard Jesus say to you. Okay, we are going to end this service in, with communion. Uh, communion is something that Jesus started at the Last Supper. These are the signs of the covenant. A covenant is a promise, like a wedding ring is a, a sign of a covenant between a man and a woman um, in marriage, that these are the signs of the covenant uh, between. Christ and us, that the cracker, the bread represents his body that was broken for us, and that the wine represents his blood that was poured out for our sins. And so uh, if you are a believer in Christ, or if you would like to start believing in Jesus today and following him, then the communion table is open to you. The way that we do it is you come down and you grab a piece of the cracker, you dip it into the wine, you come down the center aisle, and then you go around the outside of the pews after you've grabbed the elements. We hold on to it together. And then after everyone has gotten um, the elements, then we will partake together. So if you would like to come take communion, please come down. Jesus, is that you calling us? <laughs> Here I am, Lord. Here I am. <laughs> All right. Lord, we thank you uh, for your goodness and your devotion to us. No matter what, we're thankful that you are faithful to us in spite of all of our thoughts all of our attitudes, 
all of our actions, Lord, that uh, are not in line with who you've called us to be. Thank you that your body and your blood makes us righteous in your sight. We thank you. Let's partake. Why don't we stand? <clears throat> a couple things. If you want a prayer for anything, please come on to the front afterwards. But at the same time, if you feel as if when you ask these questions of Jesus, like, I don't know if I'm hearing him or I don't hear anything, and you wanted to speak with Tony, Tony would love to be able to guide you through just the practice of doing that real quick. It's, again, I don't think it's as difficult as sometimes we make it. Um, so if you would like to speak to him, he would love to speak with you. I'm just going to pray a prayer of blessing. Uh, yeah. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a light to us, that as we travel, Lord, and we're trying to find our way, that you continue to call us back to you, and you continue to guide us by your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us to submit our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes to you that we would be able to give you the, just our whole selves, that we would be able to follow you and continue to grow in you and continue to uh, just experience your goodness here and now. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would bless us, that you would be with us, that you would guide us, and that you would reveal yourself to us over and over and over again, that we would be able to experience you and then share you with people around us that need to know how good you are. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.